We're continuing with our sermon series, God, His Land, and His People. And I wanted to start off by um, reading something written by Albert Schweitzer, whom many of you may know. He was a German missionary medical doctor, a theologian, and a musician, lived from 1875 to 1965, and he served many years in Gabon in West Africa, set up a hospital there, and served many people there. And during his time in Africa, he wrote this, and I quote, Wherever the timber trade is good, permanent famine reigns in the Ogowe region because the villagers abandon their farms to fell as many trees as possible. And Wendell Berry comments on this. We should note especially that the goal of production was, quote, as many trees as possible. Schweitzer continues, These people could achieve true wealth if they could develop their agriculture and trade to meet their own needs. And Wendell Berry comments, Instead, they produced timber for export to the world market, which made them dependent upon imported goods that they bought with money earned from their exports. They gave up local means of subsistence and imposed the false standard of a foreign demand, as many trees as possible, upon their forest. They thus became helplessly dependent on an economy over which they had no control. Many, if not all of you, know that my wife and I spent 10 years of our lives in Nigeria, West Africa, And that was the period 1977 through 1987. And there was the time when the oil boom had was taking full hold on the country. It was also the time when the oil prices around the world had dropped. You remember, of course, the oil crisis of 1973, 1974. And one of the issues that was a big issue in Nigeria, in West Africa, in what they call sub-Saharan Africa, was that agricultural production was dropping compared to the rest of the world, while really, in reality, sub-Saharan Africa probably could feed a huge portion of the world's population. And I ran across this week an article called Why Agricultural Production in Sub-Saharan Africa Remains Low, compared to the rest of the world, a historical perspective. If you would like the article, just let me know afterwards, sometime today or this week, and I'll send it to you. But I quote a few paragraphs from the article. While many studies focus on factors inherent to Africa and its people, this study argues, and listen to this carefully, the root cause of low agricultural productivity in sub-Saharan Africa can be traced back to interference by external forces which focused production on a few export crops. Consequently, the evolution of local economic growth built on traditional livelihood strategies and adapted to the local socio-ecological environment was interrupted. 
The Berlin Conference of 1884, some of you may know about this, most of you probably don't, but in 1884, the leaders of uh, Western Europe gathered together and divided up Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, into colonies. And they did so with total disregard to the geographic, tribal, ethnic uh, factors that were there. They just had maps, the maps such as they had, and they just drew lines and divided it up. They created colonial territories with borders that disregarded tribal and ethnic affiliations. This separated societies and communities and disrupted trade routes and functioning systems. The colonial powers thereby secured control over raw materials, markets, and the resulting wealth. So these external countries, the Western countries, including the United States, came in, divided the continent up, and began to use and exploit the raw materials, the markets, and the resulting wealth. Following the quadrupling of oil prices in 1973, and I should mention that in Nigeria, oil was discovered in 1956. It became a great bone of contention in Nigeria, and if any of you have ever heard of the Biafran War, which is known as the Nigerian Civil War, you should know that one of the main, main causes of that war was struggle over oil lands and oil fields. Following the quadrupling of oil prices in 1973, oil-exporting countries needed investment opportunities. As the developed world experienced slow growth, commercial banks came under pressure from heavy equipment suppliers and construction firms to provide loans to developing countries. So the, West, the, the, the people that, developed, that built bulldozers said, we can't sell any more bulldozers in the West. We need to sell them in Africa. And the only way to do that is to loan them piles of money so they can buy our bulldozers. These factors encouraged irresponsible lending by banks with no accountability to the people responsible for loan repayments, no attention to local needs, and participation in corruption and nepotism. Entrenched corruption among the political elite increased transaction costs, which was well known to the financial institutions, banks, and other donors with the power to contain it. And listen to this. From 1980 to 2004, Africa's external debt increased by more than 500% to $333 billion U.S. dollars. Since 1980, Sub-Saharan Africa has spent $229 billion to service its debt, four times the debt it originally owed. In the past decade alone, Africa repaid the equivalent of three times its debt, yet its debt tripled. And listen to this. Africa the world's poorest region, pays the richest countries of the world 
$15 billion per year just to service its debt, which is more than it receives in aid, new loans, or investment. The European Union and the United States also dump subsidized products, such as sugar and milk, at, and I should mention pharmaceuticals, at below production cost in African markets, products which could otherwise be supplied locally or by neighboring countries. These policies distort agricultural production and trade and confine sub-Saharan Africa to the slow-growing sectors of agricultural trade. And I must mention that I experienced this. Where we lived, construction firms from France and from England and from Sweden and from Norway came in and did their thing. And in the time that we were in Nigeria, one of the biggest products sold in the markets, including the local markets of the little villages, was Nido milk, which was canned milk baby formula. Encouraging Nigerian women, instead of breastfeeding their children, which was the most healthy and the safest way to care for their children, encouraging to, to buy this product imported in from Western countries. Our topic today is covenantal economics, the biblical case for a local economy. And Wendell Berry coins the term kindly use of land. You know, through all the series we've been talking about how to use the land, how to use the earth that God has given us. Kindly use of land, the discipline of caring for land in its particularity. Kindly use of the land, he says, is the economic discipline observed by people who expect their, quote, seed to be thriving on the same small farm for generations to come. Yahweh, as a jealous landowner, deserves responsible tenants who will maintain an attitude of reverence and concern for the very soil and soul of the land. What we're trying to do in this series is is understand, perhaps some of us for the first time, or maybe in new ways, that God has given us this land, this earth upon which we live. And part of being his follower and part of being in the kingdom of God is to care for it and not exploit it. As our Western civilization is so prone to do and throughout history, as we've just found out, has done in all kinds of ways. And I'd like to read today with you a story from the Bible that I'm sure most of you know. It's a story about King Ahab. King Ahab was one of the most well-known kings of the northern tribes of Israel. He's actually uh, one of the very few, if not the only, king of Israel whose existence is historically supported outside of the Bible. His name shows up in some Assyrian tablets. He was one of Israel's most important military figures. He In 853 B.C., he brought an army of 10,000 infantry 
and 20,000 chariots, which was just huge for its time, a huge expense on military equipment into a war against the, Assyri- against the Assyrians. And Ellen Davis says, and I quote, Ahab's wars were fought over the comparatively scarce arable land, the tradable goods it could produce, and control over the trade routes. So Ahab was busy using any means he could, including violence and war, to expand the power of his empire. And we're going to read the story of Ahab and one of his citizens, Naboth. And if you've heard this story before, especially you've heard it in sermons or in Sunday school classes, you probably have gotten the idea that this is a story about Ahab who was a greedy person. And he was also a person who, when he didn't get what he wanted, he pouted and sulked and went to his bedroom and lay on his bed and faced the wall and pouted. And we shouldn't be greedy and we shouldn't pout. And I will agree, we shouldn't be greedy and we shouldn't pout, but that's not what this story is about. This story is about empire coming in and grabbing land and wanting to use it for empire purposes. It's morally equivalent to the history I just shared with you a little bit of, of what the West, particularly Western Europe, did in sub-Saharan Africa. And as we read this story, I'm going to read the whole story. I want you to to think of it in those terms. Think about what's really happening here underneath the the surface as this powerful king grabs, together with his queen Jezebel, grabs this piece of land that Naboth was using in a way that Wendell Berry would call kindly use. And I will just note before I read the story that the, the city in which they're in, Jezreel, means God planted. That's the meaning of the name of the city, God planted. And Jezreel, where Naboth's vineyard lay, is in the richest agricultural region of Israel, close to the major trade route running through Megiddo. So this is a rich agricultural region running that, that's on a major trade route. So you can see all those things of empire coming together here. First Kings Chapter 21. If you have a Bible, you can read it for yourself, or you can follow along on the screen. And I'm just going to read it and make a couple comments here and there. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house And I will give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you, and here it is, the inheritance of my fathers. This is the land upon which my seed needs to keep being planted. And Ahab went to his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. 
For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money or else. If it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And you will notice here, if you read carefully, that Ahab is now lying to Jezebel about what he said because he reversed the order. Kings of empire lie. And they lie a lot. And they tell big lies if they think that it will help further their grasp on empire and exploitation. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal, and she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in the city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast. And in the towns and cities of Israel, when a fast was proclaimed by the elders, that meant that there was some kind of a crisis. So in the time of Israel, if there was a pandemic like, like COVID virus, the towns and villages and cities would all be fasting. We're in crisis. There's some kind of a crisis here. Proclaim a fast, set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let him bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel sent, had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. And here you just see between the two Ahab and Jezebel, this exploitation, this being willing to do anything they needed to do to further the power of their empire. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because, and listen to this, you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of of the Lord. This is about way more than someone who's a greedy, pouting old man. This is about empire that sells itself 
to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. Then listen to this, verse 25. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. And Ellen Davis says that Ahab was guilty of two kinds of sins, the cultic sin of worshiping idols, but also the ethic, the ethical sin of building empire. And in this case, being willing to wipe Naboth from the face of the earth so that he could build his empire. He acted very abominably in going after idols. There it is, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. In rural Orange County, North Carolina, a family from Mexico lives in a rented trailer. Their roof leaks. Part of the floor is rotting from rainwater. The parents work at a white-owned farm. The mother carries home reject flower seedlings to plant a rainbow of a garden that that glows in front of her home. She dreams of owning her own home and land to raise vegetables to share with the community. But with her income from tending other people's plants, she still can't afford to buy a home. She and her husband were drawn here by the promise of agricultural jobs that Americans don't want. But now that she's here, she says she realizes many Americans don't really want the immigrants who do the jobs either. These realities make it plain to me, writes this woman, that as a white farmer, I must honestly and humbly enter the work of reconciliation. They show me the enormity of brokenness we have inherited, brokenness between ourselves and the land, and brokenness among each other, and how the histories of exploiting land and exploiting people are intertwined. Anatoth Community Garden and Farm, where I work, seeks to reckon with this brokenness. The garden was started to seek peace in the wake of an unsolved murder. Twelve years ago, a beloved Cedar Grove store owner named Bill King was shot and killed. Bill was a white man married to a black woman. He represented community and intersection in many ways. In a community full of divisions, people who don't share much shared in mourning Bill's death. To respond to the murder, Vali Taylor, a local black community leader and farmer, joined forces with Grace Hackney, 
a Duke Divinity graduate and the white pastor of Cedar Grove United Methodist Church. They hosted a prayer vigil at the store. At that vigil, Valise's mother caught a vision. A descendant of slaves and daughter of one of the largest landowners in Orange County, she envisioned creating a place where people could continue to gather across divides. She gifted five acres of her land to the mostly white Methodist church to become a community garden called Anatoth. The name comes from a biblical passage where the prophet Jeremiah summons the Israelites to plant gardens and seek the peace of the city in response to violence. White Americans created race to assert power, gain wealth, and exploit others, all in an effort to run away from the humbleness of being humans on earth. Colonial Virginia's lawmakers concocted complicated legal definitions of black and white. This invention enabled whites to cherry-pick their favorite parts of being human. They could amass status and wealth from owning land without having to work the land, while still being allowed to tout values of equality and justice. Those who endured the injustice simply didn't count in the white rationale. White's comfort, power, and even sense of virtue could continue unscathed. The more I learn this history, the more I realize the miracle of Ms. Taylor's gift. A black woman, a rare landowner, she chose to give her land to the community via a white church. It's a gift of biblical proportions. It turns every convention of ownership and dominance upside down. Her gift took visionary love and placed it on five earthly acres. Now committed to tend this land, how can we honor her gift? What kind of visionary love will help us to continue to see, mourn, and heal the brokenness still shaping our present reality, our present day? So the question is, what can we, as wealthy, white, American, Westerners, do, if anything, to somehow regain this vision of the kindly use of the local land, and from that to build community with those whom we live. And I don't have any easy answers. Most of us grew up not hearing the sordid history of colonial exploitation of sub-Saharan Africa. Most of us grew up not hearing about Jim Crow not hearing about the exploitation of blacks, not hearing about the genocide committed to Native Americans. We just didn't hear it. We heard about heroes. And we were great. And we are great. And we want to be great again. And that means empire. That means using as much timber as possible. It's really hard for us 
to know what to do. But we can educate ourselves. We can seek ways to remake broken patterns of who makes the decisions and who gets the good jobs, who is protected, and who is targeted by laws, and who owns the land. As a white person, I can confront the broken parts of myself that still enjoy the benefits of these unjust patterns. We can get to know and love our neighbors and follow that love into organizing for just policies and just economies. We can follow that love into creating life-giving communities based on connection and collaboration. With the power of Internet and the power of Google, you can find out just about anything you want to find out if you're willing to try to find it out. Communal farms in your area. Organizations that try to deal with racial justice. Organizations that are trying to pull people together to talk in our communities about what's really happening and how we really can be there for one another. There are ways you can do that. You could start this afternoon. John in his, the Apostle John in his first letter wrote these words. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness, and remember, whenever you read the word righteousness in the New Testament, you can also substitute the word justice. Whoever practices justice is just as he, God, is just. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, is of the empire. For the empire has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Was to destroy the works of empire. Not to give us a ticket to heaven and escape this earth. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he is born of God of God. Those of us that follow Christ, those of us that consider ourselves to be part of the kingdom of God in the sense that he's called us to be his ambassadors and his colonists into this world. Rooted in and having given our allegiance to the Christ, the Son of God who came and lived and died and rose again so that he could restore all things to himself. That God calls us to a kindly use of our land, a kindly use of our world and our environment, a kindly use of each other, a kindly relationship with each other. And I want to encourage you this morning to, as you read your Bible and as you think about things, to, to try to place it, see it in this perspective, and then actually take steps. What could you do? What choices could you make to, on a obviously small scale, and it won't have any worldwide historical impact, but still, and we talked about this last week, 
Whatever little things you can do. Educate yourself. What's really going on? What choices do I make when I go to the supermarket? Where do I buy my vegetables? Who do I spend my time with? To whom do I give my money? Those are all choices that you and I can make probably starting this afternoon. And all rooted in the fact that Jesus Christ wants nothing more than to have his people working for a world that is just. Because my liberation and my salvation is dependent upon the liberation and salvation and well-being, not only of all the people of the world, but also of the world itself.